Hey everybody, welcome to episode 31 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I think I just surprised you. We're Steven recording was, now. Yeah, we're I recording I did not now. see that. You didn't ask me if I was ready. Yeah, I know. I was pretty quick. But what if I'm not ready? Uh, we're going to roll just the same. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Mountain Bike Podcast where we talk about all things mountain biking, uh, the goings on and different things that we're digging at the moment and or preparing to do that sort of a thing or have done recently. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find out more about this podcast, mtbpodcast.com or just search for MTB podcast on any social thing. The socials, we are all over them. Yes, you can find us there. You can buy things uh, at mtbpodcast.com, which we should cover really quick. Yes, Steven is clacking them together right now. They're stem caps. Stem caps. We have them here in our hands. They're pretty cool. Uh, if you listen to this episode, uh, we're, we're recording it on a Friday. We're posting it on a Friday and uh, late on the Friday evening. So this Friday, not yes, next Friday. Yes, it's this. today. Today. So uh, just to let you know, we are going to be at the California Enduro Series North Star Round that they're having right now. We're going to be there recording some pretty awesome. It's going to be something different. Uh, it's We're going to put it up as a bonus episode. But we'll talk about that later. We will. Uh, but we'll be there and we'll also be giving away stem caps there while we're there. Yes. We'll be giving away one stem cap per stage. And uh, if you stay tuned to our Instagram, you'll be able to give, you'll see the clues where we left them and you'll be able to find them. Yes. Yes. So uh, search for those stem caps, look on Instagram and uh, find those suckers and we'll, uh, yeah, it'll be a good time. So. Sweet. One other thing that I want to talk about really quick. Mm -hmm. I, we'll also have another bonus episode coming up because I'm going to be doing a race that's really, really gnarly next weekend. That's the, uh, the, the point to point thing in park city. Indeed. Going to yeah. do it with the Kegels. Yes. Yes. Indeed. And Sophia. Yes. Yeah. Sophia's doing it too, right? I think so. Yeah. 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 And, uh, Jeff Kabush. Yeah. Sounds like Todd Wells as well. Mm -hmm. Um, stacked field. Uh, those boys don't have to worry because, uh, I'm not in prime form. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have to worry anyway. Uh, if you didn't catch the sarcasm there, but, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this thing and I don't know how long it'll take or at what pace I'll do because of coming back from an injury, but I'm going to finish this thing. It's going to be 75 miles of nearly, it's almost 100% single track. Which that sounds fun. That sounds like what Leadville should be. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be pretty sweet. 75 miles. But here's the other thing. It's 15,000, I think 600 feet of climbing. You, Yeah. Is it at least that much descending too? Uh, yep. Yeah. Or is it more descending? Pretty much. I think that we descend slightly more. Okay. Maybe. I'm not sure. Being a point um, to point, it could go either way. Yeah. So. so it's, it's going to pretty much cover every bit of single track in the park city area that's desirable. Almost, that's crazy. You know, so it'll be a ton of fun. I can't wait. If you're looking for an epic race to put yourself, you know, to put yourself to the test, you should consider this one. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I can't think of another race that's this long, this gnarly, that's almost 100% single track like this. Crazy. So I'm sure that people will be, you know, furiously typing in right now events that they have that are like that, which is cool. So send those yeah, in if we you have, know. um, but, uh, if anybody, any of you haven't, the reason this one's so unique is if you've ever ridden in park city, you know what I mean? But if you haven't. It's like heaven on earth for bikes. It's so rad. Everything kind of funnels down into town. You've got amazing trails all around you. Then, and, and it's just like, it's like somebody just dropped spaghetti all over those hills. And that's what they called trails They're there. It's just littered everywhere. And there's chocolate so, places all over the place. Ritual chocolates. Yes. Ritual. I'm excited to go to that. Very really love good. that. Yes. I actually ordered a bunch of it and yeah. I've been slowly, you know, snacking so on good. little bits of it. Oh, 
It's so good. So good. Uh, yeah, it's a good stop, good stop there in Park City. So, uh, and I'll be visiting the the Pock HQ there too. So good. I don't know if I'll be getting any podcast content from Pock, uh, but we'll see. Uh, since it's all nice and close and we'll be staying in Park City. But anyways, exciting stuff coming up. Are it's they getting be- you a new brain bucket? They are getting me a new brain bucket because my old brain bucket is not so great. It's not so, so buckety. Anymore. No, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of messed up. Yeah. So uh, I examined it in detail with uh, 6D's Neil Stores uh, last night. And uh, he was staying with us because yeah. he's here for the California Enduro Series. And uh, he checked out the helmet and we uh, basically, he, he's an educated person on helmet design and also crashing with helmets and knows what was going on there. And there was a lot of force transferred into that helmet because yeah. there were cracks in the back of the helmet. And you didn't hit the back of your helmet. Nope. Uh, but the helmet retained its shape and, and I, I'm very impressed with it. So good, pretty good stuff. And it's thick where it needed to be Save my head. So anywho, can we tangent for a brief moment? Cause yeah. I feel bad with Neil. Okay. We should so apologize. We need to apologize to Neil and <laughs> yeah. we need to clarify something with all of our listeners previously we've always called him foul mouth neil yes it started from the uh what episode was the it sea then? otter is a sea otter episode and you know he's not really foul mouthed obviously true. you know a swear word can come out here and there but same you know goes for me yeah, yeah. not so much lately i've been really good on the podcast you have, we haven't had any also outside lately. of it either yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um kudos so i mean i feel bad so i want our listeners to know that when you see neil in public we don't call him foul mouth Neil in public. That was like an inside joke. We don't need to do that. Yeah. Neil's very professional. Yes. Everything that comes out of his mouth is very professional. Like I would just say his mouth is very professional. Okay, in so general. professional mouth. So Neil. he is professional mouth Neil. <laughs> okay. I think that's what we need to call him from now on. And so if you see him in public, he's the guy that looks like the character from Inglorious Bastards. Um, Eli Roth is the... Is the, actor. the actor and it was uh, Donnie Donowitz or they called him the bear Jew. Like that's handsome man, handsome man. He's a, a, a handsome, dark, long hair, big toucan Sam schnoz, <laughs> but that's, that's Neil. So professional mouth Neil is his name from now on. Oh, Neil is probably very upset right now. Uh, why would he be? It's very professional. He is professional. Yeah. Let's move into the news. Sounds good. News team assemble. All right. First bit of news is a bicycle from a company that makes other things. They finally make something to put their parts on. <laughs> this is true. They're well known for making very good hubs. Yeah. Uh, for making good brakes. Yes. Don't they have like a six piston brake or something crazy like that? I don't I remember if they have. I just know all of their four pistons. I'm sure they yeah, do have a have six like piston, a six. but yeah. that's terrifying. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's like a bear trap there. So that'll stop things. Uh, cranks, plenty of things. It's Hope. Yeah. Hope bikes. The HB160. Yeah, uh, so it's got a very engineered CNC-looking uh, chainstay on that thing, and seat stay, for that yeah. matter, it looks like. And the dog bone. Yes, yeah. uh, carbon front triangle, though. Yep. It's a fancy-looking bike, 160 mil of travel, and uh, it's got... But it's got some interesting stuff to it. Uh, what stood out to you, Stephen, before I, I get into to what I hit on? Honestly, there's not, I want you to go first because what I like about it is that it's hope and it's going to be good no matter what, but it's got 130 millimeter rear hub spacing, which is weird. I mean, I guess they're thinking, so since we make our own hubs, we're, you know, it's easy, but it does seem weird. Mm -hmm. Most are 148, 148 millimeters these days, AKA boost until the next thing comes along. Uh, 
Super Boost is already out, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so the bike that they have in this case, uh, it weighed 14 kilograms. Uh, so not not too not terribly bad. light. Yeah, no, not too not, not too, too light. terribly heavy. Uh, interesting things about it. This thing also, it looks like it's got like a strange, it's got a threaded BB in there, which mm -hmm. is good to see. Um, but looking at the back wheel and looking at the way, like the angle on the spokes, I, I don't see how they're planning on getting around the, the lack of rigidity that you get from a wider hub. I, and I don't know. That's, you know, leave it to hope to think outside the box. And you know what though? Way. I mean, they, they probably will be able to do it because hope makes such good bikes yeah. or such good stuff, you know? They're smart. They know what they're doing on that. So, um, interesting stuff. The bike is beautiful, especially if you're any type of like a machinist or anything else. The rear end of that bike is really cool. I, I really like the triangle, the buttressing of the actual, the, the chainstay assembly. It looks really good. Yeah. It's, it, it almost reminds me, this hope bike kind of reminds me. And, and it's interesting because pink, pink bike had the same thing. I've always looked at hope stuff and I cringe a bit when people just go crazy with the hope colors on mm -hmm. all of their things. We've talked about this before. We yeah. like subtlety in our bikes, but um, the one thing about hope is it's kind of like boutique exotic stuff. Yeah. You know, and it's funny cause they, in pink bike, they said it's, it's for a collector, a connoisseur an enthusiast. And I, I could totally see this being something that you would keep like with pride, you yeah. know, like this bike is unique. I'm going to ride this on Sundays. You, yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's like, a, it's like keeping an, a, you know, an old school alpha or something else like that. You yeah. know, it's, it's uh, pretty cool. Not to, not to imply that the bike is old school because the geometry is plenty modern, but uh, pretty interesting stuff. Cool to see component companies making a bike like this. Yeah. That's a big jump. Usually it seems to be the other way around, right? Yeah. And usually it's just white labeled stuff. Exactly. So uh, pretty cool to see. Next thing, uh, Shimano, I feel like what they've done, so they, they've released a new brake. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what they've done is they were playing on the playground with other brake companies, right? Okay. So they threw Sam, or they, they had like a, 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 they're in the sand pit. The sandbox. Sandbox. Yeah. Yep. And they had like a king of the hill thing. They piled the sand in one corner. Okay. Uh, SRAM was getting the closest to knocking them down perhaps, but they couldn't. So they knocked them down into the sand. And now what they're doing is they're just stuffing sand into their face with the new XT four piston. Yes. Breaks. Yeah. <laughs> four piston. Yes. Yeah. So now you're even stoppier than you were before. <laughs> even stoppier. That's the scientific term actually yep. stoppier. I mean, is there anything uh, else to say other than this is going to be really powerful? I think that's a very powerful statement. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I mean, it's, I feel like uh, these things are, I mean, they're practically like little, they're, they're like saints in a way. Yeah, they're mini saints. Yeah. That's what they are. Yeah. Pretty crazy. It looks like, so they're uh, anticipating that it's going to be um, 199 for the caliper and the lever, mm -hmm. but it looks like I've read that you can actually use it with the M8000 lever. Yeah. You can just use a standard lever, the standard servo wave and yeah. run it, you know, just replace your calipers with these four pistons and they're like 120 a piece. Yeah. So. so if that's the case, that's something cool. You don't have to give up or you don't have to spend quite as much. Totally. That's crazy, man. You so an upgrade to XTs. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so good on you, Shimano. Good on you. Uh, next one. Crank Brothers expands uh, a lot well, a lot of things. They have new pedals. Yes, they, they do. They look like thick. 
Whereas li- most people, most brands you see kind of going toward like a thin pedal. These things look thick. Yeah, they're pretty stout. Mm. What I will say is um, the one thing I like about these is that they're one piece bodies. Mm. You know, the old Crank Brothers flats were two separate pieces with a really long shank bolt. Yep. And it, there was a time where a few of them that I had ordered for customers came without the bolts that hold the inner cage and the outer cage together. I'm doing a scared face right yeah, now. Yeah. Like literally you just like get on the bike and start pedaling and the outer half of the pedal just falls off. That's not comfortable. Yeah. Not comfortable <laughs> and not good for traction either. <laughs> Holy cow. That's cool that they fixed that. Yeah. Um, it looks like the stamp is almost more of like a BMX style trial style dirt jumping pedal. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But then you go to like the stamp 11, that's, you know, a more sleek body, kind of like an HT or a Mm -hmm. spank or like a race face Atlas. Yeah. For those that don't know the naming convention for crank brothers, just like spinal tap, when things go to 11, they're awesome. And crank brothers 11 model is always like, that's like the egg beater that weighs next to nothing and it's full tie. That's this platform pedal or flat pedal. That's just absolutely everything that they can throw at it. It would be the bee's knee of pedals <laughs> as the kids say as yeah. the, the youngsters say <laughs> uh maxis lots of new tires they got two new tires they've got the new griffin uh-huh i've got a couple sets out well, there. actually i think they technically have three new tires well, i'm not got sure a, yeah. not sure if i'm supposed to talk about one of them i don't know well we'll talk about it okay yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. so we've got uh, the griffin which is kind of like a an aggressive xc trail yeah uh, available in like two, three sizes. It's, yep. um, available in 29, available in 27.5. They're doing it in EXO and double down casing. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. It looks like a tire that almost would be good for like loose terrain, you know? Um, it's a step down from your DHFs is really what it is. Yeah. It's kind of like a mix in between the DHFs. And then, uh, for XC dudes, if you run an ardent race or anything else, this is gnarlier than the ardent race, but not as gnarly is. as a DHF, but not as gnarly as a DHF. Yeah. Looks interesting. It looks like, so they have staggered side knobs, the shoulder knobs on there. They're staggered. And it looks like what that will do is that will give you less of a center traction. Then as you roll the tire over, you kind of lose traction. Then you snag and really hold onto those side knobs. This is probably going to be a smoother transition as you roll over. More intermediate. Yeah. 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 Um, Interesting, man. Yeah, and it's the V cut is a, is backwards from what you would think on those mid knobs that are mm-hmm. stepped. Yeah, um, but it, I've got two sets out there right now that I've got customers testing already, huh? and they love them. Cool. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. There you go. Um, all right. Uh, the next one, they have some new stuff, some big tires, not plus tire or not not like fat bike tires. Yeah, just DH tires. Uh huh. So this tire, um, they spotted this at Crankworks and. Uh, I guess Menar has been working with Maxis on this guy. Um, what this tire supposedly is, is more aggressive than a DHF, mm-hmm. but not quite to the shorty. Which the shorty is the tire that they'll use in mud. That's the mud spike. It's got a lot of gaps or big gaps between the knobs. Knobs are tall, pointy. Uh, a shorty term, relatively speaking, is a misnomer because yes. it's taller ta- taller knobs than other tires. Yeah. But um, it, it's an interesting, the new one it looks different though. It has a different tread pattern slightly. It's similar to the DHF. It's it's kind of a mix between a really aggressive DHF, the aggressor, and the shorty. The shorty. Because you look yeah. at that how it goes, the two three two on the on the top 
yep. uh, knobs is it's very reminiscent of what the aggressor is. It really is. Yeah. And the aggressor, from what I've heard, is a fantastically predictable tire. Shouts out to my brother who uh, gave me a very uh, some, some detailed feedback on it. So yeah. he said that it is extremely predictable. Yeah. Like you never feel like you are wondering if your tire is going to hold, you know exactly what it's going to do. And it holds extremely well, but it also, he said, it feels like it rolls much faster than the DHR two that he had. It does. It definitely does. So interesting to see, man. Huh? Cool. Good to see. And, uh, they may or may not be coming out with 29, 2.5 aggressor. They may not. May or may not. Who knows? Yeah, we're really breaking some news there, eh? Uh, really solid stuff, hard hitting. Yes. Let's go into uh, transition. Let's transition, if ha. you will. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is full of dad jokes already. People that hate puns are probably just pissed. Uh, anyways, uh, transition, release some new bikes. I always have trouble keeping intense transition and Rocky Mountains lines straight. Um, it's kind of, they got a lot going on, but they made it pretty easy. Uh, first things first, uh, it looks like, they released, uh, the Sentinel that's, or I shouldn't say the release, but the Sentinel is their 29 inch, 160 mil front, 140 mil rear travel bike. So that's your 29 Enduro. Yeah. And then which, they have the, the patrol. Mm-hmm. They released that as well. Which is 27.5. It looks like, yes. right? Yeah. And the, the, so interesting to see something I like on the 29s, how they're running less travel in the rear instead of equal travel all around. Not with every bike that doesn't work, depending on the geometry of the bike and everything else. And the kinematics and mm-hmm. yeah. But I do like that. I like that feel. More travel up front. Totally. Even on an XC stuff, I have my bike set up with 120 up front, 100 in the rear. Yep. So um, the Patrol, uh, however, that is uh, 170 mils of travel and it's there. And then 160 mils of rear. So that's more, that's getting into, that's that's treading on DH territory. Yeah. And that thing, that thing will hold up to a 2.8, a 27.5 plus tire. That is, Dear me. yeah, that's a big bike with big tires. That's a man's bike. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the Scout uh, that they have, 150 mil front, 130 mil rear, and 27.5. That's a 25 I, trail bike, or 27.5 trail bike. Interesting, though. Like, when you look at it, just, I guess, with uh, the 27.5 wheels, the big old chubby Fox 36 on there in the front, and the super short stem, it still doesn't look like a trail bike to me. You no. Know? It, it looks, looks gnarlier. Like a, yeah, it does. It really right? does. Right? Yeah. I mean, 150 up front, though. It's, yeah. Yeah, we're getting into trail enduro territory. And then the Smuggler, 140 mils of front, uh, 120 mil in the rear, 29 inch. This is the bike that I think most people, if you're looking for a transition, this is the bike that 99% of people should probably be on. Yep. The, the thing is we go for the bigger travel, but chances are you don't need the bigger yeah. travel and it's going to make for a less precise ride. Absolutely. Look what Nate Hills does on, on his SB four five. Yeah. He's got 114 mils of travel in the rear people. Yeah. That's it. Yep. So, and 140 up front. So anyways, uh, you don't necessarily need a full on gnarly bike to get gnarly. Totally. But, uh, new transitions, they got the all pretty good stuff. So good to see, uh, Steven with that. Let's Should we transition into the questions? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, very good. The you know, same was, dad joke it, you did. It just wasn't as It bad. was good the first time, and it's even better the second. That was was it? Oh, I yeah. thought it was terrible. <laughs> Let's go to the questions. Question. It's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. All right, first one from Anthony. He says, hey, guys, love your podcast. Listen each week. I live in Berkeley and typically ride the trails about four to five days per week. I use the Runtastic mountain bike app on my phone 
to track my ride stats. It does a good job, but to review my performance and ride data, I have to stop and pull my phone out of my pack. Can you recommend a cycling computer, preferably, preferably one with a wireless sensor, water slash splash proof, and GPS, and doesn't break the bank? Break the bank. Thanks so much. So in that, you're not talking a computer at that point. You're talking a GPS. Yes. So computers. Which technically, they it could be called a computer. Yeah, but in typically in bike terms, when you talk about a computer, you're just talking about something that's just going to give you mileage data and all that based off of a wheel speed, sensor. which is fading away yes. as GPS has become more prominent. Yes, and more. Uh, I guess uh, the price of entry is a lot less on a lot of the new right. computer, the new GPS based. Yep. And, and what we in this industry call it, the industry speak is we call those a head unit. Yes. So basically like if you went to a gym bike, they have a head unit on them or you're in your car, instead of calling it a deck, that's your head unit. Yep. Basically it's where it's your display. So, uh, in this case, oh, I, I know a lot about this arena here on the GPS computer side of things. Would you like bikes. to answer this question then? Steven, I would love to. Well, please. Thank you. Uh, so uh, bottom line stuff, uh, stuff that you can just pull for, right from the beginning. Uh, Garmin has their, I want to say it's their little Edge 20, I believe it's edge called. Edge 20 is and Edge 25. 25, yeah. 20 is not going to allow you, I believe, to pair with uh, other sensors, but it's a tiny little GPS guy. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about it, it's super, super compact, and you're able to get GPS data and then push that GPS data with Garmin Connect with your phone. You can just automatically upload it to something to analyze further. Uh, so what it'll tell you is just basic metrics. So you're going to get time of day, elapsed time, you're going to get speed, uh, you can get um, those sort of things, basic stuff. Uh, if you go to the 25, you're able to pair, I believe, heart rate monitors with it. And you're also, I believe, able to pair, pair like a cadence sensor yes. as well. GPS takes care of the speed part. Don't need a speed sensor on a bicycle. Pretty cool. Uh, from there, uh, that's like the bottom line stuff. Wahoo also released something. Uh, it's their new, it's like a mini little element. And But the thing about that one is it actually doesn't have a GPS. Okay. It relies on your phone's GPS. Which sucks and power. I'm, I'm personally not a fan of that. Yeah, because I, my phone is like my lifeline. Yeah. Uh, I use my phone. I want my phone to have plenty of battery left. Yeah. And I'd be a little worried about running down my battery on a long day. So uh, that's one thing. I'm that, that said, if you're always carrying your phone and you don't mind that and you don't go on longer rides, it could be a good option for you. Yeah. It's a little bigger display. gives you some other stuff that you can use that the little Edge 25 and 20 doesn't have. But up from there, it's the Garmin Edge 520. Uh, that's honestly, uh, unless you're doing like serious navigating, I don't recommend getting anything higher than that. There's yeah. no point. Yep. The edge 520 is going to give you GPS. You compare it to power meters. You compare it to any sensor you compare it to Bluetooth and amp plus sensors, which is different wireless languages mm -hmm. that these sensors might uh, speak. Uh, it's really awesome. You can have maps, uh, go on to dcrainmaker.com and look for Garmin edge 520 maps. And the, he has a full walkthrough on how to get custom maps on. It's kind of a pain, but you can put custom maps on there. So you can get like really high end topographic maps. You can get Google's maps or sorry, Garmin's maps as well, but you can get like custom maps from different regions and load them on there, which is really helpful. Yeah. Um, and then the other, really the other competitor is the Wahoo element and they have the element, the element bolt, the element bolt is, uh, it has a bolt bolting it down to the mount. That's Ah, one of the things, yes. <laughs> um, and it's more aerodynamic, more compact. Um, 
it's, it's, I don't know, between that and the element, the element doesn't have actually that much larger of a display. It just has a larger body. So the bolt's probably a better bet there. Um, and then the only other one that I would really consider a player uh, is the stages dash, but you need a power meter for that stages power meter for it to even work. Yeah. Yep. And that one is very much on the data nerd side of things. So you can customize, which you can customize fields on the Garmin and on the Wahoos, but you can really customize things and display a bunch of data um, with this stages one. The one thing the stages has that nobody else has is mounting in two different directions. So you can mount it. So it's basically shaped portrait like a TV. Or, yeah. yeah portrait, and you can mount it portrait or landscape. Interesting. So, which is kind of cool. So for mountain biking, for example, you might actually want to mount it to be landscape. Yeah. Whereas usually we're used to having head units be portrait and sticking way out in front, but on a mountain bike, having it portrait makes a little more sense. So it doesn't stick way out there and get hit on things. So, um, they make their own mount that you have to get. Whereas with Garmin and Wahoo, you can get third party mounts. Yes. So, but yeah, if you're just looking for basic data and GPS and uh, something they can upload to something else, I would recommend the Edge 20 or 25. Yeah, good and simple. And it's so small. And cheap. If it paired with a power meter, I'd have that. Yeah. Yeah, because my phone will have any topo maps that I need for navigation. Totally. So. Yep. Uh, all right, next one uh, from Caveman Biker again. He says, sorry to bring up another training question. No need to apologize, Caveman Biker. He says, but I gotta ask, this is my first year really focusing a lot on mountain biking. While I have ridden bikes since pretty much forever, off-road moto has always been my focus. Having spent most of my summer this year pedaling, I'm feeling better up the hills than I ever have before. My question is how to keep this fitness as much as possible over the snowy winter months we experience here in Northern Utah. I don't own a road bike or a trainer and can't go down that. And he says, quotes, road. <laughs> nice job on the pun there. Yeah. This winter. That limits me to what I can find in the gym. I suppose that a trainer road plan would work to a certain extent on a stationary bike, but I'm sure there's are, there are some do's, don'ts, and tips you can share with me on how to make a gym bike work with a trainer road plan. Yeah. So if you're at a gym and you want to use trainer road, uh, there are a couple solutions. Going back to stages, stages makes a fantastic fantastic indoor spin bike. It's still, I don't believe personally as good of an option as using your bike and your power meter. I still think that's going to be much better Yeah, because you're just going to be building, um, you're going to be building fitness of many different applications, or I should say many different ab or, uh, I guess from many different angles, you're going to be building fitness in a very specific way that will relate to what you'll do outside. Uh, also you, it's a lot less, more cost-effective in most yeah. play, uh, cases, but black diamond, for example, the outdoor mountaineering company, they have a bunch of stages, indoor bikes up there and they have power meters built in that are sharing out Bluetooth data. So you can pair that to your phone. Yeah. That's the key is you want a spin bike that's outputting data so that you can pick it up wirelessly. Yes. Right. So other than that, Watt bike is the only other brand, uh, Schwinn, I believe makes one and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but they make one that outputs data via amp plus. So you'd need a dongle to pair it with your phone, but really Watt bike is going to be your best bet there to actually get power data. And really at this point, he's at the mercy of wherever his gym is having any of those for him to be able to use it. Correct. Now, of course you can take a slightly different route, uh, if uh, it doesn't sound like you uh, would be into this, but if you bought power meter pedals, so for example, the new Garmin vectors that are going, that are out, I think what the twos and I, I believe, I don't know. If the I vector two and the vector S. I think they might be coming out with some new ones this year, but I'm not sure. But those ones, they have power meters built into the pedals. So you could like swap out the pedals on your spin bike. Yeah. You got a power meter, uh, but those are costly. Uh, yeah. PowerTap makes the P1 
or P2, P1 pedals, I think they're called. Okay. Uh, so that's another one. Uh, but another way you can do it, if you don't have power is you can play the workout and, but the thing is you have to understand what perception ties into what power targets you're looking at. And you can just go off of rate of perceived exertion. So basically like a zero to 10 scale and, uh, you know, seven and a half usually is around somebody's threshold, uh, which is roughly equivalent to the pace that you could maintain for an hour. And after that hour, you would therefore be completely exhausted, yeah. like completely exhausted. Not like I'm tired, but you'd be like a, a puddle of sweat and, and, and mush. So, uh, that's roughly where your threshold is. If you could stay steady for an hour, be around seven and a half. And on every trainer road workout, you can see your threshold. It's that white horizontal line. So that should give be an indication like, okay, relative to that down, you know, zero is nothing. I'm roughly at this and you could pedal at that. That's one way to like kind of get by that we actually do see people do. So they basically just hit play on the workout and it says, you don't have a power source connection. You're like, yep, yep. I got it. And you keep going through certainly much better to have a power, uh, to have something connected because your perception from minute five to, well, from minute one to minute five to minute 45 to minute, who knows what in a workout are very different things. Seven and a half is actually going to yield a very different result in terms of work Yep. because seven and a half when you're fresh, no problem. Seven and a half when you're worked, you're probably going to be putting out a lot less wattage. Exactly. So that's the problem with perception. So it's perceptive. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, Alan, uh, he says, Hey guys, awesome podcast. It's my daily commute. Listen, while I head to the bike shop for work, this is strictly a question about fun factor. I'm hoping to have a Labor Day weekend mountain bike trip, which, which city would you recommend Crested Butte or Durango, Colorado? I live in Glorieta, New Mexico, just outside of Santa Fe. And he says, Google it. Nate Hills has a couple of videos posted from my trail or from the trails in my backyard. And I was curious about what you thought was the, or the best place to visit would be, which would be the best experience in regards to trails, the city, food, camping, etc. Excited to hear what you have to say. Cheers. And then he says, hashtag specialized epic for days. <laughs> well, Alan, hmm. lucky you. Mm-hmm. We actually got an expert on this. And it happens to be Nate Hills himself. Yeah. He's not here with us and we won't, uh, we won't pretend to imitate his voice or anything, but, uh, Alan, you got an answer straight from the horse's mouth. So, all right, he's here. <clears throat> this is what he says. He says, okay, here we go to start. I have considerably more time in Crested Butte. So my opinions are based on those experiences. I haven't spent much time in Durango truthfully. Although I will say that I like this Crested Butte vibe a lot. And that is why I tend to find myself there more frequently. There is just something about that place. Durango has its charm, but it feels more like a big city. That said, I think Crested Butte has better food and coffee than Durango, despite it being a bigger place. This is ample camping and, or there is ample camping in Crested Butte and the scenery is unmatched anywhere. Really Durango has more styles of trail from desert to Alpine and everything in between. Whereas Crested Butte is mostly classic high country, single track, more trail variety in Durango for sure. But everything in Crested Butte is fairly epic involves long climbs to get to the radness. Durango has closer to town options as well that are more easily accessible. So I feel like he just laid it out pretty well. That's Pretty much all of it. Nate Hills. You're quite the tour guide slash travel guide there. Well, have you followed him on Instagram? Yeah. Follow Cam Friday. That's his YouTube channel. Yep. Uh, he always has the hashtag, you know, beware of imitations. <laughs> and it's true. Like try as we might, all of us, we're just not as good as Nate Hills at riding a bike, man. Yeah. He shreds. So, and he does a good job of getting some good footy. So uh, thanks Nate for, for chiming in and answering that question for Alan. Andrew. 
Hey guys, love the podcast. Never thought a podcast would keep my mind awake and interested for hours on end until I started listening to y'all on long, on long drives. That makes me, um, feel like, uh, we're doing a good job. Totally. Yeah. That's good stuff. Glad. Uh, hopefully we're constantly improving. That's the goal. My question is regarding gearbox drive trains on mountain bikes. And then he says in parentheses too heavy for roadies, right? I've heard recently some saying that gearbox drivetrains, such as the ones produced by Pinion, are the future of mountain biking. I was wondering if you could discuss, in short, the pros and cons of a gearbox-driven drivetrain versus the external cassette and derailleur-driven drivetrains we have today. In my mind, the biggest pro would be having a sealed transmission that would require less maintenance and protection from rock strikes that tend to destroy derailleurs. I've also heard that only the only way to shift the, with a gearbox is with a grip shifter, and I really would like to understand why. Any knowledge is greatly appreciated. Keep up the good work. Well, Andrew, um, that's actually not necessarily true. You do have trigger shifter setups for um, all of the gearboxes, whether it's a roll-off or it's a Shimano Alphine or a Nexus or a Pinion. You can do that. And can, I jump, can I jump in on this Go really quick? It. Yeah. I, I think that this is a really good application for electronic shifting. Yes. And that's, so then now discussing that, that was actually the very next thing I was going to say <laughs> is there is Alphine DI2. Mm, so there is electronic shifting for this already. Huh. The pros, yes, it will eliminate any sort of rock strikes and damaging to shifting or anything like that, you know, from a physical standpoint. And yes, the pros would be, the other pro would be that there should be less maintenance with a sealed transmission. It'd be pretty sweet. The con is it's not there yet. They can't handle the power. They are very, very maintenance happy. Hold on. They can't handle your power, perhaps. Oh, I don't put out a ton of power. I don't think I could break a gearbox. Uh, you'd be surprised. Well, you know. So it, I just baited you into that. Yeah. Just getting you to build up the ego. That's all. I Thank know. you. Played right in. The thing is, they're just not quite there yet. You yeah. look at um, Zeroed Bikes actually does their downhill bike with a Nexus 8 speed um, built mm -hmm. into their, their whole chain system. So it does exist in some capacities, but overall long-term use they just aren't there yet yeah it's something that yes they need to get there um and they're working on it i will say that the the roll-off 14 speed hub actually really impressed me hmm. um a friend of ours um and i, I think john's a, a podcast listener Sweet. but he ended up doing a reeb Thai badonkadonk fat bike nice yeah. so titanium fat bike it was the first one they ever made and it actually has the roll-off 14 speed hub and it huh. was really cool that would be pretty sweet. He's never had an issue with it so far, but he doesn't ride it a whole ton. Okay. So, um, you know, I come on SRAM and Shimano, like what's the deal? Like when you look at what we've got, like hanging off of our bikes, it's archaic, it is. man. It, really it is, is like, it's nuts. We have like exposed gears with a big old derailleur hanging off. Like yeah. what's going on? I, I, and I, I feel like these these companies, although as established as they may be, the the drive the the gearbox companies, they do not have the R and D budgets of something like SRAM and Shimano. No. I'm sure. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know. But I feel like SRAM and Shimano are just milking out every penny they can from these old, just dated designs. Yeah. Um, I know that it would be new standards and it would change hub standards and it would change wheel standards, I'm sure. And a but whole lot of stuff doing that anyway. Exactly. Yeah. That's my point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like we're getting that anyway. Why don't we just, just cut the crap and, and instead of trying to, to polish a turd, why don't we actually just completely change this thing? Yeah. That's my thought process. Sorry. Rant over. That's okay. Got a I little, think, got a little I heated. I have Sorry. to say that if the, if the Alphine system 
if they could d dial that down where strengths of the internal parts were, you know, good and they were nice and serviceable, the Alphine and Alphine DI2, mm. they're all ready for disc. Yeah. They already have 12 by 142 spacing. They're, they're actually pretty decent. They could easily adapt these and make it work on boost. Yeah. And then you've got huge hub flanges as well. So you're going to end up with, you know, shorter spokes, stronger spokes, you know, stronger wheels because wider angle, shorter mm -hmm. spokes overall. I think it'd be a good thing for the, you know, for the industry in, at large, but they're also very heavy. How will we get over chain length? as it increases or decreases through a suspension stroke. You would end up having to run some sort of idle or pulley something that's like spring-loaded, that. kind of like a derailleur. Mm -hmm. You'd have to run something. Uh, Single-speed guys do it all the time. Or we go shaft drive. Or we can do, I guess we could do shaft drive. And you could Somehow. do anything you want. I think belt drive would be fun. Yeah. Quieter. Yeah, a lot yeah. quieter. And crazy. no chain lube then either. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, that would like give but me a still, lot of But still, you're going to have here. to keep the tension somehow. Yeah, and you're going to have to tension. run it on, on a spring-loaded idler system, kind of like a serpentine belt on a car. Keep the tension. I feel like that's a song name. It could be. Someone, I think, has written that. Yeah. All right, Nate, he says, hey, guys, I have a comment and two questions. First, I'd like to say that this podcast is amazing, and five stars for sure. Thanks, Nate. I just want to give a shout-out to Steven. He's been working with me the past month or so with getting my suspension setup dialed in on my Yeti SB6. I'm six foot two inches and about 250 with my riding gear. My rides, my rides were feeling harsh no matter what I did with my Float X and Fox Fit 4 fork. I could not get it dialed in. Uh, Steven finally got me switched over to the DHX2, uh, that's the coil shock, mm -hmm. and swapped in an RC2 damper on the fork, giving him what over his Fit 4? Uh, giving him high and low speed compression damping mm -hmm. instead of a lockout. Aha. Uh -huh. And then he says, uh, all I can say is, wow, this bike feels completely different and floats along the trail like fresh churned butter. Good job, man. Yeah. He says, I want to thank Steven for putting up with my numerous questions and even meeting me at the shop occasionally and answering because you don't work at the shop. No, uh, I don't. But you still meet people there. But I'm always awesome. there. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, meeting him at the shop occasionally and answering my sometimes daily texts to help me get everything dialed in. This type of service is something that is missing in today's bike shops, and it really does make you want to keep your business local, even when you may be paying a little more. Uh, so one thing really quick on that. I feel like, honestly, it's just a simple thing. It's value exchange. Yep. And, um, I mean, you, 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 this is, we're getting soft here y'all, but you care about people. And that's like one of like your, uh, I feel like an outstanding trait that you have and you, you take your, you're kind to people. And I feel like if bike shops just had that in mind and helping people, man, I bet your bike shop would be doing a whole lot better because people would want to go there. That's part of the reason that I would actually consider opening a bike shop is because I know that I, I hate to say it and I don't want to sound, you know, right. rude, but I could do it better than 99% of the shops out there. Yeah. Because you care about people and that's the crazy thing. It's not much. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it boils down to a lot of work, but it's driven by caring about people. Yeah. So good to hear, man. Um, so, uh, he says, I'm trying to find my spot. All right. He says, my first question is about riding position. When I'm on long climbs, I find myself leaning forward and almost floating over my seat. I have to consciously tell myself to sit back and anchor my sit bones Any lapse in concentration. And again, I find myself quad mashing, almost hovering over the seat. So my question is, would this just be a learned bad behavior behavior, or could it be a bike setup issue? He says, my SB6 is an XL and I am running the seat all the way forward with a 40 millimeter stem and 30 millimeter rise handlebars with 15 millimeters of stack on the headset. So I don't think that this is a bike setup issue. No, I don't. I don't. I 
agree with you 100 mm-hmm. percent. now it could possibly this type of scenario could be caused by a bike fit issue yes but in this case i do not believe that it is it looks like you're fit up fit pretty well i this is a, aside from bike fit this is a common tendency for every person that rides a bicycle yes as you start to climb steeper you have to lean further forward to keep the weight centered on the bike so you maintain traction yeah as you lean further forward you end up closing your hip angle off and then a lot of the time, what you do is you end up elongating everything in the back posterior chain, your quadriceps, your hamstrings and everything else. And it makes it so that it's a little tougher to use them. Whereas everything in front tends to be shortened and you get to get, you get these short, powerful contractions out of those shortened muscles. Yeah. So what we end up doing is we rely on those too heavily and we end up, like you said, mashing our way up. Now, the thing is though, it can also be a necessity. Like there are certain climbs that I did, like, uh, I don't know, every single climb in single track six that was so steep that I had to be like sitting uncomfortably and offset on the nose of my saddle because it was just so steep, right? So at points you have to do this. But one thing that I try to do whenever I feel myself doing this needlessly, usually it's when I have a lot of fatigue and uh, I pass it on to my quadriceps, the, you know, the work on the quadriceps because they're a more dominant muscle. But when I have that situation, I really try to focus on my breathing and I just reposture. And my breathing is my trigger for putting myself back to square one in terms of fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is when I train, I try to align very good breathing with going into that right position on the bike. So that way it's almost like I'm like a dog. And when I you know hear somebody open up the treat bag, I start to salivate type of a thing. Yeah you know, Pavlov, right. His conditioning. Basically, if I start breathing well, I think, oh, I need to be in the right position. I need to change that because it is a common tendency. So don't think that it's anything just with you. Um, and that's how I personally get over it. Yep. So second question is I'm really interested in getting out and improving trails and have been really thinking about how I could possibly get involved in helping build and develop new trails. I know some local business owners who also love to ride, who may be willing to donate to help fund new trails and improve current trails. Uh, thanks again for the podcast. So I, I sure that I'm sure that he reflects the situation of many. Yeah. What can you do to get involved in trail work? You need to get involved with your trail stewardships, yeah. your local trail stewardships, whether you guys have an IMBA chapter or you have, you know, that this came up in last episode, we have Tahoe area mountain bike association and the biggest little trail stewardship. Yeah. So you just have to find your local trail stewardships and contact them see what you can and do. you get your business owner friends involved with them to make the donations to help build things yep you know it's not you know most of this the building of the trails typically is going to be volunteer based for the most part mm-hmm. the money that it takes is with all of your environmental impact studies the design the oversight like everything that government Mm-hmm. requires for building a trail, mm-hmm. that's where the money mostly comes from that or where sense. the money mostly goes. Should I say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes sense. Yep. Uh, last question for today before we get into the business, it's from art. He says, Hey guys, great podcast. Definitely five stars. My question is in regards to tire width and rim size. I currently have WTB STI 19 rims that come on my 2013 Santa Cruz Tallboy. I was wondering how wide of a tire I can safely run while maintaining the intended traction of the tire. I'd likely, I'd like to be able to run a 2.5 inch tire on the front. Do I need to go with a wider rim? Do you have a recommended rim with starting point for a 2.5 inch tire? Thank you. And he says, thanks for your help and keep up the great work. Art, you cannot run a 2.5 on a 19 mil internal rim. It's not a good idea. That's not a good idea at all. You're honestly stuck to 2.25. Yeah. Maybe. That's a push on a 19 mil internal. And why is that? 
because you're folding the tire over, you're rolling that sidewall in further and further and further. So instead of having a very square base for the sidewalls of the tire to be supported on, Mm -hmm. you're basically trying to stand, you're trying to build stability on by holding the very tip of a balloon and trying to get the balloon to hold still. That's what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about the shape of the tire, that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. You need a wider based rim or wider internal width internal width rim to create a stronger wider stiffer base yes for the tire sidewalls so for you to put a two five you really should be looking at something 28 to 30 mils internal yeah so hey, you might be able to get away with something like a 25 you could probably get away with a 25 and be okay you'll start to dome a little too much though exactly and, and that's the interesting thing like whenever you see like the new trends coming along with tire width they're constantly getting wider if you are not upgrading your rim width with that, then you are not going to get the results that you read in the review about that tire in a 2.5 inch. Yep. It's just not going to deliver the same stuff. In so, fact, what you end up having to do is you have to run more tire pressure to get the sidewall support and then you lose the traction. <laughs> it's, so it's you're a vicious circle. Exactly. So yeah. really you should be looking at like WTB's frequency I-29, maybe the I-25 at the narrowest. Yeah. You can do the KOM I-29s if you want to keep some lightness. Yeah. So they just started releasing um, the KOM I-29s now. So that's cool. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, With that, Stephen, let's get into the business. Oh, some business. It's business time. Steven, this one, you better put your Lycra on for this one. <sighs> or should you? No. I mean, really, this this topic really applies to everybody, or it should apply to everybody, even the downhill bros. Yeah, it should. Uh, we're going to go over interval training. Yes. It's something that a lot of people talk about and a lot of people misunderstand. And even if you're like, bro, I got it, and I'm turning this podcast off, don't do it. I bet we're going to point out some stuff that after listening to this, you are going to know more about interval training, interval training. So you can impress people, especially that girl at the bar that you're trying to meet. I bet she's going to be super impressed by totally. your interval training knowledge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause Pick she's probably points. an XC rat anyway. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. That was uh, sarcastic. I don't think any girl is interested in your interval training. Let's be clear. None was. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what it will do is it will help you actually do this better than most people yeah. and misunderstand it. So first of all, um, Steven, uh, where should we start? I guess, I guess with interval training, you have to, I guess the explanation of structure. Yeah. What is, what is an interval workout and where does structure play such a, why does it play such a big part? Yeah. So th- that's basically what like interval and people use intervals, but basically it's just putting structure to a workout. Right? Okay. And usually intervals imply that something is repeated, uh, that it's not just one, but that it's actually repeated. Okay. I mean, if I was to define interval training, I'd say structure workouts with prescribed intensity and duration. Okay. Right. So yeah. you basically have. You have different types of intervals, and usually it can simply boil down to two. You have a work interval and a rest interval. Okay. Usually they're offset with each other. Yeah. And uh, that's where things start to get a little more complicated for a lot of people in terms of how they execute their interval workouts. It sounds simple, but those two basic building blocks, people misunderstand those. Okay. So um, we'll get to those in just a bit. But first thing, some misconceptions that I see commonly with interval training is first of all, like I said, you better put your Lycra on for this yeah. one. Is it just for XC racers? It's not, right? No. I mean, um, I was riding with uh, Lee Likes Bikes, Lee, Lee McCormick. Okay. 
incredible mountain bike coach. We've talked about him before on here, mm-hmm. but, uh, he's, he's good friends with Curtis Keen and, and he was talking to Curtis Keen and Jared Graves and what they do for enduro training. For example, it's a lot of interval training. We'll it go over the style of stuff they do. We'll go over that in just a bit. Uh, enduro or sorry, downhill athletes. They do a lot of interval training, uh, everything then to cross country marathon guys that are doing like consistent, steady efforts. Yeah. Marathon, they should be doing interval training. And even if you're like a 24 hour endurance athlete, that's just doing a flat course, you should still be using interval training. Yep. Um, it's, it's also something really quick. It's not just for high intensity. No, it, you could also be doing lower intensity intervals. Exactly. And remember interval is just the structure. Yeah. And it's also not necessarily miserable. Like everyone's like, uh, intervals, you know, and you instantly think that it's bad and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I will say that the time that I, that I finally learned what descending intervals were Mm, on a mountain bike, that's not good. Cause I thought, oh, we're going to go downhill on intervals. (laughs) No trick. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. Descending intervals for those that don't know, are basically the duration of the intervals descends. In other words, it gets shorter while the intensity usually increases. So, and it's on an uphill. Yes. Not a descent. Yes, this is true. That was the worst part for (laughs) me. Yeah. Yeah. So a common misconception that I see a lot of people have also with interval training, I talked uh, before about how like, you know, well, I'm a, yeah, like I hear it from trainer road, like a lot of triathletes, like, well, I don't need to do high intensity intervals because I'm a triathlete. So I just need to ride at two to five hours at like my Ironman pace. Right. And that's not true. No. Uh, the best Ironman athletes in the world do a ton of high intensity work. Yeah. They don't do that on race day, but they do that because doing that high intensity work, the reason you prescribe a specific intensity for a specific duration is because you are chasing or you are searching, searching for specific things that happen to your body when you spend a specific amount of time at that specific duration. Yeah. So we call them adaptations. You're looking for things to change in your body. And the only way to bring those about is to, it's, it's, you know, it's it's to stress the body. Yeah. And it's just like cooking. Um, if you, you know, if you cook something, uh, you can, you might be want to take meat and make jerky out of it. Right. Okay. So to chase that adaptation with that meat, you're going to cook it at a low heat for an extremely long period of time. Yeah. Whereas if you want to do something like sear a steak, it's going to be less just a, you know, a minute or two, you're going to cook that steak. It's going to be super high heat to bring about a certain adaptation. Just like if we're chasing, you know, we're talking about repeatability or we're chasing any type of, you know, anaerobic performance, or we're chasing even something like neuromuscular performance, you know, in that type of capacity, you're going to prescribe just like a recipe would be for anything else. You're going to prescribe a specific amount of work at a specific duration. Can we not use food analogies anymore? Cause I haven't had lunch yet. Yeah, me too. I'm pretty yeah. hungry. Yeah. So a lot of these athletes, for example, they're looking to like a steady state athlete, like a triathlete. They might be thinking like an Ironman athlete. Mm-hmm. I need to build like a lot of aerobic fitness because I don't go anaerobic and I'm using air quotes here, anaerobic during my race day. But there's some interesting stuff that goes on, especially when we talk about how long you wait in between your intervals and what that does to the type of fitness that you have and how that changes things. Okay. So, um, first of all, let's go over the basic things that you, um, let's go over two things. It's called work capacity and repeatability. They're basically the two main goals that you're going for with a, with an interval workout. Okay. You're either searching to increase like the amount of power somebody can output yeah, or the duration that they can put that power out. Okay. 
or you're hoping to increase their ability to put out effort after effort after effort, whatever that effort looks like. So, okay. So one is raise the power output. Yep. Two is lengthen how long you can put the power out for. Yep. Or three, how many times you can put the power out for a specific amount of time. Yes. And you may be thinking, well, just raise the power and have them put it out for a really long amount of time. But it's, it's a trade-off. You hear golfers talk a lot of the time, or like basketball players, they'll talk about you know their, their shots from the three-point line and then their free throws, and they can't seem to hit both at the same time. Yeah. You know, they can work on one, and then the other one tends to fall off. Or like a golfer, their short game suffers while their game off the tee is great, or vice versa. And with cycling, you're really looking at increasing performance, and you can only pull it in so many specific ways. You can't be the world's best sprinter and then hold that sprint for a whole tour de France stage, right? Fair. Not going to work. No, uh, not at all. That's why you have different types of riders. They yeah. specialize and that's what you have to do. So in this case, uh, just to, to, I guess, to be more specific about it, uh, if you are searching to increase your work capacity, you're going to have an interval structure that aims to increase power output, either intensity or duration. And the workout will have work intervals that are capacitive and stretch your limits. Okay. So that's like a VO2 max work you'll hear a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. In most cases, that's used to be raising that ceiling, right? Raising your capacity. And you'll start out a lot of the time in a properly structured plan, a plug like what we have on Trainer Road. Um, yeah. But in a properly structured plan, what you'll see is that you'll start out at a lower duration, like a shorter duration, I should say. You might start out at the same intensity the whole time, but you might start out doing, you know, a one minute VO2 max effort. Mm -hmm. And then over the next couple of weeks, you're now doing three to four minutes at that intensity when you couldn't do it before, but with the proper structure and everything else, you can get it done. Yeah. So that's how that goes. And then usually you have really generous rest intervals between that. Of course. So basically think of yourself like a video game character. And we've all played like these older video games where like, you know, you're running or something and you have like a sprint meter and you have to let that recharge. Yes. And you have to let you it use it. Exactly. Right. So basically if you exhaust your capacity, usually we're talking about, you know, your anaerobic capacity, and then you're just relying on aerobic capacity thereafter. If you exhaust that and you're trying to build that anaerobic capacity back up, mm -hmm. what you'll do is you'll give that person plenty of time to rest. So then they can build that back up and, and work at the same intensity again. Yeah. The point isn't to put out absolutely everything you can. And then as you get more tired, that decrease, the point is to put out whatever is prescribed and then do that exactly the same for the whole workout. Okay. However it's prescribed, right? Yes. So when rest intervals are generous, usually it's not as important at whatever intensity you're sitting at during those rest intervals. Yeah. You're just trying to rest, right? But that changes when you start to work on repeatability. When you're working on that, then your interval structure aims to increase your dynamic ability, I guess, to like exploit whatever you have. Of course. So what we're talking about is like, cool, I can, I have this really high work capacity. That's neat. But if you do one three minute effort and then you're completely gassed and you can't do any more, you're not going to be a great cyclocross racer, mountain bike racer in general. No, right? not at all. Because you're looking at like something like enduro every turn you have to jam out of those, out of that. And then every, in XC, you're going to have a bunch of climbs every lap, you yeah. know, you have to be really good at that. So repeatability, you see in a lot of mountain bike training, there's a lot of different names that they have for these type of intervals. You'll see something like uh, over unders. You'll see something like uh, 
reduced amplitude billats is another term, but billat workouts. Um, uh, billat's an acronym for something. It's actually a last name. Oh, believe it or well, not. Never mind then. Yeah. Yeah. Last name of, of the, of the gal that actually came up with that, which is pretty cool. Mrs. So, billat. Mrs. Billat. Yes. Ah. A Veron Veronique. I believe she's a nice lady. Name. Yeah, she is. I assume. I don't know her. <laughs> I don't know her either. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you do her workouts, you don't think she's very nice because it's very hard. That's okay. Um, and then it, you, micro bursts is another one that you see that works on repeatability. Yeah. So I'll go into those, but basically your work intervals may or may not be capacitive in this case, you may actually be working at a lower intensity, but we may just be shrinking those rest intervals in terms of the duration that you have. Yeah. So you see this a lot with, uh, when a person's like uh, starting out and they're building up their aerobic base, like, you know, you'll do like a 15 minute interval, let's say, and that 15 minute interval will be like, you know, not at your threshold, but like 80%. Okay. It's uncomfortable, but it's something that you can sustain for a while. And at first you might do that 15 minute interval. Then you might have five to 10 minutes rest in between the next 15 minute interval. And that might be your whole workout. But with time, you'll shrink that from 10 or 15 minutes, that break to five minutes, to three minutes, to two minutes, to just continue for 30 minutes. Which is a type of stress that is forcing your body to recover faster. You're exactly. teaching it to recover faster between those outputs. Yeah, exactly right. That usually happens over time. And we're talking like weeks, you know, mm -hmm. you'll be shortening that. But there are some interval workouts where it's actually... Uh, it's, it's limiting within the workout and the rest intervals are contextually designed that way so that you'll be doing something that really stretches your limits. And then you'll be limited in terms of how much you can recover Yeah. or you'll also, and it could be an, and situation you're limited at how low you can actually rest in terms of intensity. Okay. Like maybe we won't actually drop you down to like 40% of your threshold, which feels really easy. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll actually have you closer, you know, you're and I'm using air quotes, resting at 85% or resting at your threshold. Yeah. Might be a shorter workout where we're really, you're working really intensely. You know, you shoot up to 130% of your threshold. Then you drop back down to that threshold. Then you go back up, then down, down, up, yep. down, up, down. And that's working on, if you think like a, a mountain bike race, like something like enduro, you sprint out of a turn as hard as you can. That's your 130%. Yep. And then after that, you go into a turn and then, or you, you get into a spot where you settle right after you sprint out of that turn. And you might be just descending a really gnarly section, or you might be pedaling through something and then you have to sprint up and over something, you know, it's constant and mountain biking. We're always surging and then having to settle in. Yeah at not a coasting pace a lot of the time. Yep. Cause even descending when it's technical, you are not recovering ideally, right? Not at all. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work. So, uh, that's where those type of intervals start to come in to play. And something that I see that people mess up so much is their coach will prescribe them five VO two max intervals, right? Okay. So they know how hard they need to work. Hopefully they have a power meter and not a heart rate monitor because a power meter is a much better way to prescribe workouts. Um, it's much more precise. Yeah. Uh, you can Google that, go on to blog.trainerroad.com and find out more on that, but it's a much better way to measure, but hopefully what they're doing is they aren't just saying, okay, five intervals. I have a five hour ride. I'll just do one an hour. If your coach was intending that you actually do those back to back or like with very minimal rest or resting at a specific intensity, then you're actually missing the whole point of the workout. Yeah. 
And that's the key. And I see more people rest too much or too long. They're generous. Like they'll be like, yeah, I need to do these intervals and I'll have, you know, three minutes on three minutes off a one-to-one ratio of work rest. When you might need three minutes on and one minute off. Right. Yeah. Or they'll get to that point where they do three minutes. They're like, oh, I'm feeling really tired. I'm just going to wait for another 30 seconds. I'm going to wait for another minute. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're missing the point. You have to be strict with the rest, just like you're strict with the work. Yes. And if you do that, you will be a much better mountain biker with road racers. It's true too, but I wouldn't say it's as critical for them because in in mountain biking, it just, because of the nature of the terrain, it's so much more repetitive. You have to be able to deal with rests that aren't left up to you. The terrain might kick up. Somebody attacks you. Uh, you're dealing with a rocky section or dealing with anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's not up to you to decide how long the rests are. So if you decide how long they are during your, during your training and you're working on repeatability and improving that, that's not very good. If you're working on increasing capacity, that's different, but totally, you know, you're not working on increasing capacity in a race anyway. So, yeah. So let's go over some ideal, um, I guess, uh, interval structures. What do you say? So then we can give somebody like an idea of what they're looking at and what they should look for. Sounds good. Where should we start? Well, since you're the XC nerd and you told me to put (laughs) on my Lycra, let's start there. All right, cool. (laughs) Um, so XC, you'll see a lot of these guys, uh, cross country Olympic, I guess I'll start with that. I'll separate XC a bit. Okay. Yeah. So like cross country Olympic is like the stuff where we do short loops usually. Yes. And it's usually 90 minutes of racing somewhere around there. 90 Uh, minutes of racing. You might have five to seven laps. You're repeating the same climbs, the same descents and the same rock gardens and the same technical sections mm -hmm. over and over again. Yep. You'll see a lot of these type of athletes doing like VO2 style workouts, um, VO2 repeats, VO2 max. Uh, I'm going to define that really quick. That's not uh, how much oxygen you can take in. It's how much oxygen you can utilize. That's very different. Yep. Uh, It's basically like you can have a whole pool of water, but if you just have one drain working uh, versus opening up the whole bottom of the pool, uh, you know, we're talking about how much can actually drop out of the pool there. So how much your body can actually use. So VO2 max work is aiming to make your body more efficient. It's, it always takes in plenty of oxygen, Yes. uh, but we're aiming to make it more efficient and actually processing the oxygen it can get. Yes. So, uh, those, the reason the XCO athletes usually have to deal with that more than anything is because they're dealing with climbs that might be a little more sustained, but they're still repetitive. Yes. So we're talking like three minute climbs maybe, but usually a little shorter than that in an XCO environment. Yeah. They might be a little longer too, but that's VO2 work. So what you'll see there is you're going to be working, uh, you know, uh, you're going to be working somewhere around uh, below 120% of your threshold, but 105 up to 120% somewhere around there. Yes. We're talking like an eight or a nine out of 10. It's not going to be your full sprint speed, but it's going to be an eight or eight or a nine somewhere around there. And this is still, this is still considered anaerobic work. Yes, it is. Yeah. All the time. You are pretty much going to be anaerobic most of the time, let's say. Yeah. So I've got a a cool visual for this actually. So let's say that you're working on this type of work and, uh, but you're limiting the rest, so to speak. Okay. Right. So let's say you're doing three minutes on, and then you're doing one minute off, which isn't sustainable for very long. (laughs) If anybody does that, it's very painful. I'm already tired. Yeah. But let's say you're doing that. Okay. Uh, if you were to look at that interval structure, visualize it, like it's going up for a workout or for a a work interval, it's like a block that's really high, a rectangle. Three minutes long. And then a short rectangle for one minute. Drops down and it's one minute long. If you were to connect, basically like look at that, like a bridge, like the golden gate bridge in California Mm -hmm. and the big old suspension poles that they have cables, we should call them, but they're really a giant pole. But 
imagine you draped cables over that workout mm -hmm. and it would make a smooth transition from, you know, the, the top of that work interval down to the bottom of the rest interval, top, bottom, top, bottom. That's called a catenary. Hmm. There we are. Engineered <laughs> things. So when you're doing that, you're actually transitioning when you're working hard like that, you're getting into some anaerobic work, right? You're yeah. stretching the limits and going beyond the limits of your aerobic capacity. Okay. You're exhausting that aerobic capacity and everything else, or exhausting the anaerobic capacity. But then when you're bridging in between that work interval and you're in a rest interval into the next one, you're actually in an aerobic state when you're recovering. You're there. dipping you're down into mm -hmm. an aerobic state. And you're still building that up. Now, as the workout goes on, your anaerobic capacity, just the stores, I should say, your anaerobic stores start to decrease and yeah. you rely more heavily on aerobic work, on aerobic stores. So those intervals become more aerobic in nature as the workout progresses. Because you're depleting your anaerobic abilities. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. So it's basically like you're draining one tank and you're relying on what's left in the other one. Okay. And that one tank is like a, it's like a NOS tank, right? It's like uh, using nitrous in a car. Drains out really quick. Okay. Steven just got a, a, a frustrating look on his face. I was face. just going to make a, a smart... Alec, uh, fast and furious reference, but gotcha. I'm not going to. All right. So, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's actually improving both, which okay. is uh, something that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, and when you do that high intensity work, you're also building up a lot of your aerobic capacity with it. Good. Pretty interesting stuff. Okay. So, uh, then let's talk. Uh, yeah. cross country marathon. Yes. Yeah, so that's like more like sustained stuff. So that's yes. like Leadville business yes. there, you know, so you're talking like long sustained work, um, or sustained, more sustained. Efforts. So that's going to be more like threshold based. Yes. Okay. Uh, a really good workout for this is like over unders. So you'll see like a spot where it puts you just over threshold. And I mean, just over, like, you know, you're 2% over like 102%, maybe up to 105% of your threshold. But okay. Then you drop back down to 95% of your threshold. Okay. And then you just switch off, switch off, switch off and continue to do that for something like 15 minutes, 20 minutes even maybe would okay. be really hard. Yeah. But you like might do it for even 15 minutes. You might do it for shorter, like five minutes as well. But those to that type of work is really good for mountain biking, because, especially for a cross country marathon, because mm -hmm. you're dealing with, you know, long climbs yeah. and you're going to have curveballs thrown at you. You need to pass somebody. So you need to go. So just you have above. a little burst that you got to go above. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not a big burst, but it's just one just above. And then you settle back in just below one just above. So that's the type of stuff that you'll see for that. Mm -hmm. um, short track, we should cover that. Short track and cyclocross, I think are going to be almost identical. They really are. Yeah. yeah. Solid, solid move there. Yeah. yeah, they really are. Um, with that, we're looking at that reduced amplitude billets is what I talked about. Okay. And those are basically like an over under, but imagine that you're resting at threshold mm -hmm. and then, so you're not resting as low and then you're working like at 130, 150%. Yeah. Really high. Like you want to die. Yeah. It's very the whole time. It's very uncomfortable. What this does though. And then we're talking like, these are like 15 seconds on 15 seconds at your, and I'm using air quotes off because you're at your threshold. Yeah. Then you're riding as hard as you can ride. Yeah. yeah. And that's your resting. Yep. And yeah. then you somehow have to muster 15 seconds harder. Yeah. And this might be 30 seconds long. Who knows? Uh, you might be doing 30 seconds of work, then 15 seconds of rest. And this rest once again is at threshold. So it's, uh, it's a pseudo rest yeah, and that'll continue for six minutes, eight minutes, something like that. Yeah. Really painful, really tough stuff. But then in between those, in almost every case, you're going to give yourself a generous rest Yeah, because you want to be able to hit your marks and, and work that hard. Right. Yes. Um, so that's what you'll see a lot of those style athletes doing. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So then going from short track and cross uh, and uh cyclocross mm -hmm. um enduro yeah similar 
Uh-huh. Just going to be more rest, like a bigger gap between yeah. this over and under. Yeah, and you might not be spending, uh, like microbursts is something that, like I said, C- Curtis Keen and those guys, they'll, they'll use these style workouts. Okay. Um, and I'm going to get to something that's going to seem like a caveat that throws all of this stuff out the window later, but I promise it, it'll only help. But uh, with microbursts are basically capacitive efforts as hard as you can. What does that mean? Uh, so that means that it's it's exploiting all of your capacity. Does that help? I can't go any faster. I can't pedal any harder. I can't put any more power down. Absolutely everything you can. For how long? Uh, usually very short durations. Like 10 seconds, 15 seconds? Yep. Okay. Yeah, nothing more than that. So that's powering out of a corner in the middle of an enduro segment. Yeah. Or I say nothing more than that. You might be doing up to like 30 second ones. And once again, we're talking about your 30 second max. Okay. But then, then what is your rest air quotes? Yeah. Going to be the rest in a lot of cases. So with microbursts and how it differentiates itself from something like uh, reduced amplitude billets, mm-hmm. microbursts actually have you resting at next to nothing. So they have you dropping way down. So you're just then, pretty much idling. Yep. And then you're going super hard again and then dropping way down. And you'll see sometimes you'll have microbursts for 20 minutes and it's brutal, but you'll be trying to do microbursts for 20 minutes nonstop. Usually in that case, you're going to have less than all out, right? You're going to be working at like 150, 160%, okay. something like that. But even then 20 minutes of that is going to completely destroy you. That's probably a, a workout to failure rather than completion, which okay. is never a great deal. Um, but the reason that that's good for enduro is because you have, you're sprinting so hard in a stage and downhill too falls into this. You're sprinting so hard when you are pedaling, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's not like a situation where you're just trying to, you know, um, push hard and then call it or push decently hard and call it good. If you'd be able to sprint out of every turn in an enduro stage as hard as you could, and then maintain, you know, something there, then you'd be really fast. Okay. So now the caveat for all of this. XC racers should not just do VO2 repeats, cross country marathon, not just over unders, short track, not just billets, enduro and DH, not just microbursts. Yeah. There's a time and place for every one of those and a properly structured plan utilizes all of that stuff in the right time and in the right place. So the training stresses are made to work together. You don't necessarily want one type of stress all the time is what you're getting at. Yeah. Cause if you do microbursts the whole time, your body is going to get used to that type of stress and actually just build. It's basically like filing down a blade. You file down a blade to be in a specific shape, but once you filed it down to that shape, and sure, it's sharp in that shape. You can't actually make the blade, you know, more effective at anything else. Right? Or essentially, that's like when you go to the gym. If you do nothing but bench press, bench press, you're not helping your body overall. You're and, not helping your performance overall. And interestingly enough, this is a much better analogy. Thank you. Uh, bench pressing. Let's say you use a lot of back, even though they say that you should just use chest. But you use back. You use arms. You use core. You use everything else when you bench press. If you're just pushing up weight all day, you're not going to be building up the rest of the things that could be helping you more. Mm-hmm. And that's the same can be said for building fitness. If you're just the type of person that's doing microbursts all day, then, or just the type of person that's doing threshold interval, steady state stuff all day, you could actually be getting more benefit for your steady state work. If you're the latter by doing some shorter, high intensity stuff, because it's going to build different types of fitness that can then contribute more to your aerobic capacity or your anaerobic capacity absolutely, or your ability to recover. Right. Yeah. So you want to be doing all of it, but it has to be done at the right time. And it has to be trending gradually and appropriately so that you're getting what you want. You know, I know a guy who's good at this. His name's coach Chad. Chad Timmerman. Yeah. 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 So I know that this seems like an ad for trainer road, but hopefully what I want you guys to understand, 
um, out of this. I'm, I'm basically grabbing the knowledge that I have from trainer, from my experience at, at yeah. trainer road and trying to share it with you guys. Cause I, I do feel like a lot of people are missing out with their interval training. Number one, their branding is miserable. Yeah. Number two, they think it's only for liker guys. And number three, they're not doing it right. Yeah. Uh, limiting your rest in, or being as strict with your rest as your work is a good thing to do. Yeah. It's just going to make you a better rider. Um, making sure that you're doing the right type of work that's specific or emulates the demands that you'll face on race day. That's a good thing to do. And as you get closer to race day, your workout should represent more and more what it'll be like. Yeah. The last parting thing that I want to say on this, Steven, mm -hmm. is the fact that you don't need to replicate the demands of race day precisely, especially when it comes to duration. Okay. A lot of people think, well, I'm going to go ride Leadville. I'm probably going to do a nine, 10 hour time. I need to be able to ride my mountain bike for nine to 10 hours. Not true. It's not true. It's amazing what you can get away with on much less time. Yeah. Um, your body, what it can do many times for an hour, it can do for three hours, five hours. And what it can do for two to three hours, it can do all the way up to 10 hours. You know, so, um, yeah, uh, I can understand checking it off the mental box that you feel like, you know, the psych psychologically, the a that you would have of knowing, okay, I can do that. That's, that's something separate, but physically speaking, you don't need to emulate yeah. it. I usually, I've always thought of, you know, if you can ride your bike for five hours, you can race it for 10. If yep. you ride it for two hours, you can race it for four, yep. double what you can do in training. Yep. Because you have the adrenaline of being in the race. You've got the focus. You've got there. You're just in the zone. I've always felt that that's like a good, solid way to look at it. Hey, yeah. I can ride for three hours. That means I can handle this six hour race. Right. It's, it's subjective and it changes and it's different for each person. Yes. But, uh, yeah, that's the principle. It's yep. spot on. So Steven with that, let's get into the tips. You don't care. They'd count on your tips to live. Now, first of all, your tip, sir, uh -huh. you've already said this. I already have. You've done this one. Oh, man. It was a long time ago, though. Okay. Um, well, then I'm going to switch it up. Oh, fine. Let's have you go first while I think of it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Jaybird Freedom headphones. No bueno. I mean, they're bueno, but not today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been working with uh, Project 321's new hubs. Okay, what are those? So Project 321 is a company based out of uh, Central California, and... They are using their new hub system is really cool. It's you've got either a, a 144 points of engagement. Okay. Or you've got 216, I believe. Holy cow. And you've got either a two by six or a three by six engagement. Wow. So that means three poles of the six that are actually in the drive ring engage at a time or two of them. So if you have two engage at a time, you get more engagement. If you have the three engage at a time, you get better torque capacity, but slightly less engagement. So they're customizable. So they're customizable. Interesting. The cool thing about this is you can do a quiet version or a loud version. Ooh. Within the same hub. How quiet is quiet? Um, ne next to silent. Oh, not like quite that. as silent as Onyx. Okay. But you don't hear them while you're riding. I love, I want, I want my hubs to be silent. So I just built a set of, um, 144 engagement three by six quiets uh -huh. for my friend, Brian Butler, friggin' awesome, Are they? awesome hubs, huh. about 600 bucks for front and rear. Wow. But phenomenal. They come in XD, they come in Shimano. So hmm. you can do all drive setups. They come in boost, non-boost. They come in all of the, all of the sizes and lots of different colors like black or black 
or silver or black. <laughs> nice. Good. No, they actually do come with other colors <laughs> okay. too if you're that kind of person. But um, no, they're but that's just, all you should get. Just yeah. get black. And, and Project Three Two One for years has done um, lefty conversion kits for being able to install lefties on pretty much any bike out there. Huh. Um, but no, these these new hubs are awesome. Hmm. They're really well built, really nice. Nothing too crazy off the wall that's not like a hard to find replacement bearing, you know, when you need to replace them. Right. Um, and the cool thing is they're fully selectable and they don't use a wearable spring. They're magnetically driven. Ooh. So the pawls are actually, they use, there's a, a magnet embedded in the pawl and a magnet embedded in the other side of it. And they're set to both positive poles so that they want to separate from each other. <laughs> Well, guess what clever. happens with magnets? They only wear out every 50,000 years or so. They're so good. your hubs, you know, you're not going to have to replace ball, uh, Paul Springs at all, ever. Unless you live for a really long time. Yeah. Like um, 50,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> I should clarify the reason that I want smart, because I could hear somebody thinking like, why does Jonathan want uh, silent hubs? That's bad for multi-use trails. Uh, the reason that I would want silent hubs is to be able to hear exactly what's going on with my tires. Yes. It is an incredible feeling if you've ever ridden a bike with a silent hub. I feel like I can, my handling has leveled up. Because really you can do. actually hear, like you said, what your tires are doing. You can hear the grip and the traction or the lack thereof. Yeah. You, and it's more of like a feeling than a hearing. Yes. It just enhances that feeling. Fair. Totally fair. Right? Yeah. I would, I would say no, absolutely. It, it complements. The, the sound complements the feel. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty amazing. So, yep. um, and, and I am actually going to be putting a little nog uh, oi bell on my bars. Cause it's discreet and doesn't look ridiculously large and doesn't jangle around. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I would still be able to notify trail users. So. Shout out to uh, friend Kyle Gardella. We have these little uh, bear bells that great basin bicycles oh, yeah. orders with the logo. They've got Tamba's logo and the great basin logo on them. And you can make them silent. And what he does is he actually ties off a little piece of some sort of, you know, like uh, plastic wire and hangs a donut ring magnet off of the bell. So when you don't want it to sound, you just chuck the little magnet up inside the center and it locks the dinger with the body smart. of the bell. And then it's totally silent. That's smart. That's free 50. That's <laughs> free. Free 50 is good. Yeah, it's a good price. Um, the So my plan B tip that I'm going to have here is the uh, insulated hose covers that you can get for camelback hoses. Okay. It's something that I see a lot of people when they're riding with hydration packs, they don't have their, the hydration, the, the hose part insulated. And it's crazy. Yeah. Cause then you get the disgusting hot liquid every time when you drink, the first bit is always really hot. Yep. And especially if you have drink mix, ugh, that's yeah. gross. Never good. So one fix that I've heard people doing is blowing into the bag first and then drinking, but then you're puffing up your bag with air, which okay. yeah. I, you should deflate all air out of your packs. So There's slosh. none. So it doesn't slosh. Yep. So it, what I like to do is just use an insulated cover. You can get them from these hoses or you can get cheap neoprene or you can go on Amazon. And I think that there's like a generic one that you can buy and then trim and you can just put that over the hose. It makes a huge difference. It's just a small neoprene sleeve and it keeps the liquid cool. Yeah. So, uh, now since you're going there, yeah. my, what I do, so first of all, you need to, people need to understand there are two different insulated hoses that Camelback sells. Uh -huh. They sell a black one. In a blue one. The black yeah. one is for cold weather, uh -huh. keeping it from freezing. Yes. Do not use the black one in hot climates. Yes. Because it'll actually boil the, the liquid inside faster as it absorbs that heat. It gets hot. Use the blue version. Yes. 
What I always do, and I've noticed even with the insulated ones, on hot days, really hard rides, if you leave water in the hose itself, yeah. it'll still actually get lukewarm. Yep. So what I do is I blow the air just a little ways back into the hose yeah. so that I get less heating of that water. Gotcha. Sorry. So, and I don't blow air into the bladder. I don't go it's that far. It's just into the hose a bit. It's just into the hose where it goes into the camelback itself, into the actual pack, not the hydration bladder. And that way you've got more insulation for it. And the other thing I mm. don't like about mm. letting the water heat up and then blowing back in is now it's heating up the rest of the water via yeah. thermodynamics. Right. So every time you blow wa hot water back into the you're cold water, the you're just heating up the rest of it. So blow cold air. Once you're done drinking, give it a little blow back in. Yep. And that's it. That keeps more water cold all the time. If I, if this was like a radio show, I'd play the Jurassic Park drop where he says clever girl right there. Although yeah. you're a dude. Yeah. So, you know, it wouldn't really the work. The velociraptor scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good, good stuff. That's clever, Steven. I yeah. like that. Smart. Yeah. There you go. With that, let's, uh, let's end this one. Uh, we're, we got to head up to North Star. I got to get ready this, this evening. We uh, do. It's going to be exciting stuff. And remember people, we're going to be up there all day tomorrow. We're going to stash some top cap setups. Yeah. We're going to. Do some interviews and things and lots talk of to stuff. Some people, and it's going to be a really cool episode. We're not going to tell you any more than that, but get ready for an extra episode that is totally different than what we've done. Go to mtbpodcast.com, listen, share, and support the show with the stuff that's on there, the new top caps. And follow us all day on Instagram tomorrow. We're going to be all up on the Instagram tomorrow. That's it. We'll see you all soon. Good day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.